0: Hello, Brad Crandall from Monitor 67 Straight ahead we'll be hearing about the adventures of a man who found lost Spanish treasure under the ocean But first, a little Monitor Music Here are the Ray Conniff Singers and Cabaret
1: It's the one.
0: Over 250 years ago, a Spanish treasure armada was driven ashore on the Florida reefs, and ten richly laden ships were sunk. Forgotten for two and a half centuries, it remained for a modern treasure hunter, Kip Wagner, to find the first clues to the location of the wrecked ships. How well he solved the mystery of the submerged fortune is now measured in the millions of dollars. In silver pieces of eight, golden doubloons and ingots, jewelry and priceless Chinese porcelain all recovered from their watery resting place by a band of hard-working, adventurous, and persistent men. As living proof that the romance of treasure hunting still isn't dead in the modern workaday world, it's a pleasure to welcome this gentleman to the monitor microphone, Kip Wagner. Nice to
2: have you with Thank you. Mr. Wagner, how did you first get interested in your search for the lost Spanish gold fleet? I was combing the beach, death-walking along, and found several of these irregular-shaped pieces of silver. And by being of a curious nature, I wanted to see whether or not I could find the source from which they came, and did. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, now I'm curious, sir, had you, uh, what, prior to this time, had you done any, uh, treasure
2: hunting or any no. diving or anything? Oh, sort of no. Oh, no.
0: Nothing. What sort of research did you have to do?
2: Considerably. I've been all over Europe, South, Central American countries, searching the libraries, the archives, this sort of thing.
0: Well, now, what about the state of Florida? There's some sort of negotiation, isn't there, for diving rights and things like that?
2: Well, we have this right and have had it for some time. It extends yet for another eight years. In return for this, uh, what do you do
0: with them? Do you give them, what, a third or a half or what?
2: They get 25%. Mm Mm-hmm
0: of everything that you bring up. Right. Well, Now, Mr. Wagner, when a diver goes down to look for something, or when you're searching for something on the bottom, it doesn't look like what it looked like 250 years ago, obviously. It's not a ship in a full outline down there, is
2: it? The wreck on which we are currently working is no different than the other thousands of acres of surrounding seafloor, sand, shell, coral. Well, how do you find it? All of these heavier objects through 250 some odd years goes down to bedrock. We take the overburden off, and they're displayed as though on this floor here are the objects which we pick up like chicken picking up corn. Now, they settle down through the sand, then. Right. Well, how do you know where they are, though? This is is one of the trade secrets. of
0: Treasure, honey. (laughs) I'm sorry. It just seemed like a good question. What further plans do you have, sir, as far as uh, the salvage group is concerned? The real eight, I believe, is
2: the... uh, We will continue to salvage... Research until all of the ships have come, been completely exploited. In your research, is there any particular piece that you're looking for, and what's
0: left? Some particular item of uh, jewelry, or uh...
2: yes, it just happened that uh, King Philip V of Spain had taken a new wife, Elizabeth Farnese, for whom he ordered from the New World jewels, and we have a very, very vivid description of these, and we are uh, hoping shortly to recover those i see
0: uh any jewels which are fairly unique now as compared to those days
2: i would think they were will be most unique in as much as the description given in the manifests are something different because the survivor who was in charge of the jewelry to console king philip after the sinking said that they were of little worth being of ancient make. Of ancient make? 250 years ago, they were of ancient make. Yeah, that would
0: put them pretty well in the antique class, I would think, all things considered. Well, now, if they came from the New World, there wouldn't be diamonds, most likely. Uh, What were they, emeralds? Emeralds from Columbia. Oh, boy. Yeah, I can see why you'd be looking forward to getting into the remaining three. May I say thank you very much for being with us, sir, and uh, it's a pleasure to know there's somebody around who still looks for treasure. Thank you. Treasure hunter Kip Wagner, some of whose discoveries have recently been exhibited at New York City's Park Renee Galleries. Now, more monitor music. Here's Senator Everett Dirksen with Gallant Men. Die that others might be free, and even now they do it still. Brave, gallant men, know that someone, and so they will. Gallant men. flame let us hold it high and light up the sky with praise of our gallant men tyrants They are gallant men. You know, sometimes I think I'd like to do a song like that myself, but my agent says first I gotta be a senator. You're listening to Monitor at fifteen minutes before the hour. Coming up shortly, Monitor's critic Leonard Probst will interview novelist turned playwright Norman Mailer. Stay with us. You're on the monitor (laughs) beacon. second-generation Sinatras, Nancy by name, and her big hit song, Sugartown.
3: I got some troubles, but they won't last. I'm gonna lay right down here in the grass. And pretty soon all my troubles will pass, cause I'm in shush, shush, Sugar I never had a dog that liked me some, never had a friend who wanted one, so I just lay back and laugh at the sun, cause I'm in shoo shoo shoo, shoo shoo shoo, 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 shoo. sugar town.
0: And now a look at the world of Broadway by monitors Man on the Isle, who here examines the off-Broadway scene and interviews novelist turned playwright Norman Mailer.
4: With no openings on Broadway this week, theatrical activity moved to Off-Broadway where two new plays are stirring up a lot of interest. They are Norman Mailer's The Deer Park and McBird. McBird is the most incendiary political satire in a long time. McBird began preview performances this Thursday night, and it's already been called Notorious. It also has a $10,000 advance ticket sale, possibly the heaviest in Off-Broadway history. McBird is the first play by 25-year-old Barbara Garson, and it's based roughly on Shakespeare's tragedy, Macbeth. President Lyndon Johnson is McBird, and John Kennedy, Kenodunk, the murdered king. The play, which has been praised by some critics, pictures McBird as a cruel, ambitious, and power-hungry ruler. Because of its content, the play has met with a number of obstacles. First, no publisher would print it, so it was printed privately, and it's now sixth on the paperback bestseller list. Then two theaters turned it down, so it's being staged at a huge Greenwich Village Cafe, the first drama ever done there. Then the printer who normally prints the playbills for Off-Broadway refused to handle it. So Grove Press, which has purchased the publishing rights to the play, is also printing the playbill for the first time. McBird officially opens February the 8th. Norman Mailer, novelist, journalist, and poet, is about to open his first play. It's an adaptation of his novel, The Deer Park. I talked to Mr. Mailer, whose play was scheduled to open
5: this Tuesday night. It was supposed to open this Tuesday night, but we've delayed one week. We're going to open on the 31st of January. Why the one-week delay? Well, first of all, because the 31st is my birthday. But uh, the real reason we're delaying is, is that we think we may have something extraordinary. We've been getting better every day and we decided to go this extra week because we think if we do, we're within shooting distance of having something very large like a salesman or streetcar or Virginia Woolf. What do you gain beside the time in a week? I mean, why one week, why not
4: two weeks, why not two days? How do you decide how long to postpone an opening?
5: A theater company is really more like an athletic team than a group of artists. In other words, theatre has more to do with sports than it has to do with writing. And it's just as if you were getting a team ready for its first game of the season. And each day, the plays are made better. In other words, if you have three or four weeks before the season starts, it's obviously a great advantage if you have five weeks rather than three weeks before a season starts. Because every day, what happens is the plays are made better.
4: No matter when you decide to open, when you do open, one thing that goes for sure is that in that opening night audience, there will be a lot of critics. What do you think of the value of the critics? Do we need critics?
5: I wrote something on the Times about this, which came out today, as a matter of fact. I I think, yes, I think we need critics, because I think that critics provide a dramatic edge. In other words, it, it, uh, it's not important that a book be reviewed on the day it comes out. That's agreeable for the author, in because it gives them some excitement. But it's essential that a play be reviewed immediately, says on, the, on the particular night that's chosen for opening night, because it provides a dramatic edge in the theatre. Does it make it any better that it's reviewed the same night the play opens? No, it works to the disadvantage of the play most often. The one thing, uh, the the fact that the review has to be written that night works very much against the play because you've got, you've got to have a simple play. If you get got no play that's complicated in any way, it's like carrying a 35-pound monkey on your back. I mean, if, if you if you write the sort of play that requires that a critic go to sleep and sleep on it before he write his review, you are carrying a 35-pound monkey. So therefore, the tendency is to work toward very simple plays, plays that can be comprehended very clearly. You might have a genius for the critic, and he still could not review certain kinds of plays properly in, in, in one hour after seeing it. It takes time to digest uh, uh, any any complex phenomenon. I say what's bad about the opening night review is that it tends to create a theater of simple plays, plays which are far simpler than life, plays which have none of the complexity of life and, and the moral ambiguity of life. Nonetheless, I wouldn't like to see the other sort of thing happen, where plays got reviewed slowly and, and, and there was not this dramatic edge, this sense of impact, this sense of opening night. I mean, if, if you write for the theater, you like drama, you like excitement, and to take away the excitement of the opening night, uh, I think would strip the theater or something.
4: What do you think would happen to the theater if there were no critics? That there were no shopping guides or nobody's nobody telling you what to look for, what not to look for?
5: I think that we'd probably end up with a play that would be less good. Because the fact that we've got an opening night keeps us all on our toes. And it keeps us working and thinking and... and um, looking looking for ways to improve the play, to cut a moment here, to improve something there, enrich something else there, take out a scene, so forth and so on, because we've got that opening night, and it's it's a hurdle that we've got to take. I think that Americans have a crisis psychology. They love examinations, deadlines, uh, trading hours, closing, uh, moments of decision where you can't pass down that moment. In other words, where your life is going to be changed by at a given moment. I think Americans uh, really enjoy that kind of thing and live for it to a degree. I know I do. And uh, as I said, just uh, it, it, I, I may be weeping in my beer after opening night, but uh, I still would not enjoy producing this play and writing it and working on it as much if it weren't for the opening night. Norman Mailer, who will celebrate his birthday on opening night and possibly
4: celebrate the critics' reaction to his play. Leonard Probst, NBC News, New York. That's it from Broadway. More monitor
0: music now. Roger Williams at the keyboard with a musical reflection on the Earth's rotation. Sunrise, sunset. Now, this message from the National Kidney Foundation. 100,000 Americans die each year from some form of kidney disease. But recent advances, such as the dramatic new uses for the artificial kidney and kidney transplant programs, now offer hope where formerly there was none. Your support of your local kidney foundation will increase that hope.
1: Thank you.
0: Walter with a taste of sadness. You're tuned to Monitor. I'm your host, Brad Crandall, reminding you that NBC News on the Hour is coming up, and then we'll be back with more of Monitor 67.
3: This is Barbara Walters. Chet Huntley, Bill Cullen, and I are heard each weekday on Emphasis on NBC Radio. Mm-hmm.